Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Commercial Property Investor Podcast, where it's my job to introduce you to people from the world of commercial property. We're talking with investors and thought leaders about their experiences of the commercial property world and sharing our own lessons from the last 20 years to give you practical know-how so that you can follow in their footsteps. If you've ever thought commercial could be your next step, but it just seems too confusing and opaque, then you've come to the right place. There are so many exciting opportunities in this dynamic sector, and I'm looking forward to pulling back the curtain and sharing them with you. to the Commercial Property Investors Podcast. This is where we aim to give you the knowledge and confidence to move from residential into commercial property investment. And I'm your host, Jerry Alexander. Thank you very much for joining us again. And on this podcast series, we talk about investing in commercial property. That's property that is let out to businesses and enterprises, places where you might go to shop or visit suppliers and manufacturers, perhaps even a cinema or a gym. All these businesses need space to operate. And that's the business we're in the business of space, or workspace if you prefer. In the intro to last week's episode, I mentioned a deal we're working on, but I was not able to fully discuss it because really we hadn't quite done it, but I'm glad to say that in the end we did actually close it the day after we recorded the last podcast, and it's our biggest space we've bought to date. I did talk a little about the project back in episode 14, But now the deal's actually done and we have the keys. I'm going to share what I can about the hows and whys for this purchase, including some of the things that went well and, of course, some of the things that didn't. Some lessons and stuff like that. So let me tell you about the deal first. It's a 30,114 square foot office building with a two-storey glass atrium. It's like a central area. This also doubles up as the entrance and separates the building into effectively two equal halves. And it sits on a site of just over two, 2.2, I can't remember exactly, acres of ground. There's a lot of parking around it, about 100 and, I think, uh, 124 parking spaces I counted the other day. There are communal toilets on each floor in each wing. And there's a passenger lift in that central area just off the atrium that serves both sides of the building. It's in central Fife in Scotland, so it's not too too far away from where I actually live. It was built in 1991 for the Inland Revenue, so it's solid, but dated of course. Some colours in there could do with changing. And we paid a lot less than £450,000 for it. So... I'm going to go through why we got it for that kind of price and also just some of the timeline of the purchase from when we initially spoke to the surveyors about it right through to the day we actually got the keys just last week. So it had been on the market for a while and they had, by all accounts, received some lowball offers, but none of those ever really turned into serious bids. So in typical commercial market grey, they were inviting bids and we give no more than that. They wouldn't tell us what they were looking for. At least I knew there wasn't a queue though. I did my sums and then finally offered um, in late, I think it was late May last year or June. But to my surprise, the offer was accepted without much negotiation, which of course is a slightly worrying sign. And heads of terms are drawn up 
And heads of terms are where you draw various different parts of your agreement. It might be the price, it might be the time scale, perhaps a, a move-in date, some of the other legals that you agree in principle. Now, it's not a commitment for either side, but it's an understanding of each party would like to progress to the sale. It doesn't mean the price has to stay at the same place if things turn up in the legals or anywhere else for that matter. So we actually made the offer without a severe valuation. Now, why did we do that? Well, there's a couple of reasons. The first one is, if you get a building valued yourself, then, especially commercial, and then you want to go to the bank to raise finance, they will ask you to get another valuation because effectively the first valuer worked on your behalf and the bank wants somebody to work on their behalf. So it means you basically have to pay it twice. So that's one reason why we didn't pay for valuation. The second one is if you're making lots of offers, which you should, by the way, on different properties, then you can have every property surveyed at a thousand or two thousand pounds a time. That price will depend on size and the valuer, etc. But it's not insignificant. And it's not like the housing market where you may even have um, a home report if you're in the UK or in the US or other countries. You may have a less a lesser price to pay, shall we say, for the survey. So we often put our offers in based on or subject to valuation, which, of course, then we have to get done reasonably quickly if we've agreed heads of terms. It then moves on to, to an offer to sell, which hopefully will bring you a full legal pack. Often these days, the seller will offer to sell and give you um, various parts of the legals so you can go through them. And we asked for a profit and loss on the property and we got sight of the four existing leases that were on the property, which was some reading, of course. One with appendices was about 102 pages long. <laughs> so... You have to remember, these things tend to have, you know, 500 word sentences, all in Victorian speak, that's really difficult to interpret and seems to repeat itself in numerous different locations throughout the lease. However, you do have to read them fully. Yes, get advice on them, of course, but you need to understand them too. And that was when we discovered some anomalies with lease details that meant the service charge, which I'll go into a second, was capped. So basically... The communal areas, and including some of the least areas, had communal heating or electricity. And what was happening was that landlord would add up all the costs through the year and divvy out those on a pro rata basis to the clients. The problem is, it was capped. So effectively, if the expenditure went over the amount they could actually charge on the cap, then it ate into the rental income, and that was a problem. But it was something that was quite well hidden. So there were also budgets um, in the particular sent over for the following year's service costs, and we could tell they were going to be higher than the actual service charge. So that was a problem. We also got the title, and in those heads of terms and that offer to sell, of course, crept in some of their own conditions, which, you know, are not always the best. But what they don't give you, of course, is a competitor analysis, which you're going to have to go and do. They didn't give us information fully on the current liabilities for vacant space, which is usually the business rates is the biggest chunk of the local property taxes. And, of course, 
there wasn't really an explanation of the current lease, or certainly not the hamstring scenario, with which was on around about page 60. They also don't give you a full breakdown of the costs, partly because sometimes they don't really know what those costs are. And the company that was selling this building had another 200-odd properties, so it was low on their priority list. But over time, you can learn to work these things out yourself. Because I've been doing this for quite a while now, I can fairly accurately work out what the costs will be for these types of building. And so I can get, if I get a profit and loss from somebody, a seller, I'll be able to skim through it just to cross-reference with what my thoughts are. But sometimes either they don't want to tell you or they don't really understand the full costs, particularly when they're in portfolios with lots of other properties. But you'll learn these things as you go along and over time. So what happened next? Well, we came across some challenges in the details, as I said, which meant really we needed to lower our offer. And we did need to do that by quite a substantial amount. But let me summarise the whole negotiation purchasing stages. I mean, I want to give you a list of the activities so you actually get a feel for how these things can wind along meander along. It is usually not simple. Now, perhaps that's because I'm involved. I don't know. But anyway, this is how this particular project happened. So I'm just going to run through almost like the datelines. At first, we found, or I found the deal on the web. Didn't look at it too much, but then an agent I know got in touch by email and brought it back to my attention. And that was on the 4th of April last year. We viewed it on the 2nd of June, so it took a while just talking back and forth. Then um, I got together with the agent in a coffee shop near one of our other developments to have a chat about it a couple of weeks later. The agent then chased me five days later. And then finally we put in an offer, subject to a few conditions, not least a survey, on the 24th of June. On the 26th of June, we heard back that the offer was acceptable. So we then moved on to the heads of terms, which went back and forth a bit. And finally, we agreed those on the 5th of July. So now we've gone from the 4th of April through to the 5th of July, through chatting back and forth, going and do a viewing, giving an offer, settling on heads and turns, which went back and forth for a little bit. And again, remember, they're not full commitments. They're just an understanding, a memorandum of understanding of where both parties are at. But that basically took May, June, July. So three months. We got a bit of pushback from them about funding. We needed to provide with them with information about, you know, where we're going to get our money from. And we asked them for more information as well. And then finally, we went back for a second viewing at the start of August, around about the 6th. So that's another month. Now we're four months into this process. We didn't really go back to them then. The agent chased two weeks later, see how the viewing went and where we're up to. And then we got back maybe a week later about asbestos register and started introducing the fact that mm, the boilers weren't quite what we expected. And there were some challenges. I mean, we did take in an engineer. He inspected it. A lot of the boiler um, heads were not in great condition. There was only two or three working on the, the unit that we looked at. So there were some costs there to be analysed. And then they chased again, but we mentioned the boiler costs at this point and some unusual electrics that we discovered. And also that our investors are feeling a little bit uneasy 
third party stuff is always great to use. So this was around about the 6th of September. So now we've gone May, June, July, August, September, five months into this process. Around about the same time in October, about another month later, we spoke, or I finally managed to speak to somebody who actually worked for the company that was selling this property. It was a big company, still is a big company, with a lot of properties, over 200 of these sorts of properties around the country. And so when I managed to finally speak to him, I could get a little bit more information. I could share our concerns. We discussed that our offer would now be reduced. We couldn't agree to the, a new price, unfortunately. So we left it. We just left it quiet. We did no chasing. Did no chasing consciously whilst going about our normal business. And then just over two months later, in came the email. Um... Just checking if you're still interested. What's happening? Where are you at? Are you able to put in a revised offer? What kind of level are you? would you have to be at to be able to actually do this deal and get it over the line? That was in late December. So, of course, we didn't go back till January, did we? So we went back to them in January. And we went back and forth and back and forth. And then, actually, we eventually agreed a new price. And it was subject to getting the deal done quickly, but it was over a 20% reduction, about 23% reduction in our original offer. And the only reason we managed to get it down to that was because there weren't any other serious bidders and because we were prepared to walk away at two distinct points in that process. We effectively walked away knowing, fingers crossed, that they would come back to us. And having other deals in the pipeline makes that so much easier. But if this was our only deal, it would have been really difficult to do that. So then we progressed um, the deal to a stage we were just about to do it, just before this auction that they were going to put it in if we didn't complete in time. And we thought we'd basically done the deal. But at the 11th hour, we hit an impasse. Company it was selling the building was actually foreign based, so part of the due diligence was to make sure that we had a foreign opinion letter that this company could actually sell this property to us, that they actually owned it, and basically that has to be instructed in the jurisdiction that they're in. It involves another lawyer, and it's a cost that they weren't willing to pay. But also, unfortunately, we could not agree a cap on the cost. So in the end, it went to auction. And it didn't sell at the auction because it didn't reach the bid or the, the minimum price. But it did sell it post-auction. So all that effort, 10 months in, building's been sold to somebody else. But of course, I was keeping an eye on the auction. And beyond the auction... Keep tracking, keep tracking. So a few weeks later, we were contacted by the agent. Actually, take a step back. I contacted the agent, asked him how it went. Yes, yes, it's been sold post-auction, blah, blah, blah. Left it. But then a month later, contacted by the agent and asked, mm, well, the person who bought it is willing to maybe sell it to you, um, but unfortunately the price was above where we'd been, so... Mm, no thanks. 
it was then flipped into another auction. So the person who bought it or the company that bought it were trying to flip it. It didn't sell. So wait for it. Wait for it. Don't get in touch. The agent got in touch. Um, what level would you be willing to do a deal? Well, <laughs> we finally got it for another further £20,000 discount on our previously agreed price. So the auction trail did us favours. But my goodness, bit of a white knuckle ride. But you have to remember, when you've got lots of deals in the pipeline, or more than one deal in the pipeline at least, then it becomes less of an emotional roller coaster. So, why did no one else buy it? For what it is, rather than for flipping. Why was it that we could negotiate on this for nine or ten months and nobody else came into the party? And there were occasional sniffers, as it were. But the biggest reason is the 15,000 square foot empty part. Because the building was split into effectively was two parts, 15,000 square foot was let on leases, but the other 15,000 square foot was empty. There was no income and there were business rates or local property taxes to pay on that vacant space. That was a big problem for people. The let part without the extra bit would have probably sold quite easily to a passive investor and for maybe even more than the price we actually ended up buying the whole thing for, because that was seen as the big liability. Further to that, the area where it is, there is quite a lot of empty stock. And overall, the area is not particularly desirable. It's a nice area, but it's not overly desirable based on its location and the amount of empty stock. And there was not really a potential opportunity for planning gain because of where it was. I think another reason why people didn't buy it was just lack of persistence and not actually continuing to track the building and waiting for the price to keep going down as it did. And I think perhaps a hybrid model, which is what we're going to do, hadn't really come to their minds. So ultimately this is what we'll be doing. We'll be 50% of it will be leased and 50% of it will be under licences, which was the topic of last week's podcast. So hold on a minute. Before we go any further, why on earth did we buy it? I'm starting to ask that myself. Well, apart from the price, which was unbelievable, 15,000 square foot was already let. It's the half full, half empty glass scenario, isn't it? 15,000 square foot of this building was already let and had an income. We only had half to go. The 15,000 square foot of empty space is what we'd actually been looking for anyway. We need that kind of space to be able to operate our model. The bonus was there was another 15,000 square foot that already had an income. So from our point of view, it was a win all round. The other reason we bought this was because there's zero competition around there offering what we do. Most, if not all of it, is vanilla leased space, managed at best and certainly not serviced, which is what we'll be doing. The competition price point is quite a bit above where we need to be because of our property buying price, so that allows us to go in at a very keen price. It's also right smack bang in the middle of our existing cluster of buildings, so our team will be able to look after it without any major travel issues or 
or additional expenditure. The other good thing is the building has got various entrances, which means we can phase the works over a period of time because of these various access points. It reduces the redevelopment risk by allowing us to develop certain bits first to test the market. And here's the clincher. I also knew that the previous owner had this large portfolio and this building was just a pain in the whatnots for them. They needed to get it sold. It was just small beer for them, which meant they were kind of ignoring it, which is always a good sign. They had it being looked after by agents, commercial agents, which is a good sign. There was nobody on site dealing with it. But I knew when they'd been approached by a few smaller letting inquiries or companies looking for smaller spaces, they weren't particularly interested. So get this, this building had 15,000 square foot empty space. The current owner had four tenants in the other bit, but they weren't prepared to break this space up. But I knew there'd been inquiries for it. So that's a big reason why it wasn't getting let. And why when people are looking at it saying, mm, I'm not interested in this because it's 15,000 square foot empty. But actually, when you looked at it and found out more information, there were the inquiries. They just weren't willing to break the space up. And I found this out through conversations, many conversations with the sales agent. So quite an interesting story how we got through all that. But how did we actually finance it? And I was determined on this one not to use bank funding. And in the end, COVID came along, which meant I really had no choice, as the bank probably would have asked for a revaluation of our existing portfolio, which is standard or has been standard during the years that we've been working together. However, right in the middle of COVID, when nobody's allowed out of anywhere, there was probably a pretty good chance the valuer would say, at best, would say, I don't really know the value because the market is in flux right now. And probably would have lowered the value based on a snapshot in time, which is what they have to do. They have to look at where it is right now. And they have to say, well, look, if there was a fire sale, what would we actually get? Well, you can guess. <laughs> probably not a lot. So we couldn't really go through the risk of revaluing our current portfolio to be able to buy this. So it was another factor that led to the fact that we really needed to get external funding. But I've been looking into doing that on this project for quite a while, or this next project. So we financed this purchase through three different routes. First thing, we ourselves are now gaining a certain scale. So momentum is a factor that's beginning to allow us to at least part finance acquisitions from cash flow. And if you're buying secondhand buildings that you're maybe going to do up over a period of time, you're making sure you get really good prices for these deals, you will be surprised at how quickly you can get to a point where you can actually start funding at least part of these yourself. The second one was, um, we have some very good friends we can turn to and ask. We've built trust over a very long period of time and when you've done that, you can go to individuals and ask them, for a pretty quick answer on whether they can support you or not. And then the third thing was, I made an offer to new investors. 
In return for their capital investment, we've guaranteed, a, well, it's a 7% interest rate, which to some is extraordinarily high and to some is very low. Some people like double-digit interest rates if they're going to be investing with property developers. But we added a little twist to this because the more important thing, or certainly to some of our investors, the more important thing was that we're actually going to teach them what we're doing over the next 12 months of this project so they can learn to do it for themselves. So they're going to earn some money, but also learn how to do it themselves. And it worked pretty well. So it's something that we're going to do on future projects. So if anyone's interested in getting involved in future fundraising, then just drop me a message. After some qualifying questions, we can maybe talk through how that works. And certainly if it's not something you're going to do with us and you're maybe looking at developing your own properties, it's, it's a consideration that perhaps mixing that blend of interest plus going through the learning experience or sharing some of those learnings might be something your investors might be interested in doing. So the fact that we did this separately allowed us to set up an SPV or a special purpose vehicle for this redevelopment, which makes it ring fenced from our other properties, which has some pretty obvious benefits. Now, just before I head on to anything else, I just want to talk a little bit about risk. So I know some people will be listening to this or following our progress on this project and maybe thinking we're slightly, if not wholeheartedly, mad. It's a big project. But personally, I think I've taken a reasonable risk here based on our knowledge of the market, the local market, and some of the mitigation of risk that I've spoken about already, not least in terms of the building price. But there's one other thing to take into consideration that is not always that obvious. And that is that this property now makes up about 20% of our portfolio in terms of square footage. So it's a reasonable chunk. But it makes up less than 10% in terms of value. Quite a bit less than 10%. So we already know what at least 90% of our portfolio is doing. And now we've added another 10% to the value. So proportionally, as your portfolio grows the risk these bigger acquisitions pose becomes less and less. That's not to say it can't go wrong, but perspective is a great thing. A bigger portfolio allows you to take those bigger risks, which you hope could have even bigger returns. So the next stage. For this project, our intention to develop the vacant part into about 30 different spaces. And that will include some offices, some shared spaces, um, venue and meeting space, and some light industrial workshops. If that goes to budget and we find clients, then we should be able to at least double the value of this property. Because remember, the value is based on the income more than anything else. Give it time for us to go through the three phases of our CMO model, and we might be able to get the revenue to almost the same level as the purchase price. And I know that can happen because we've done that before on other properties. It can be amazing that you can actually get a building to turn over the same amount as it costs to buy it. It doesn't happen overnight. But with the right 
structure and the right phases of development and with the right model, you can get it to that point. So, in summary, I'm not naive enough to think <laughs> that there's not going to be challenges with this property. And there could still be something that could be a really big problem for this development, but hopefully not. I'm going to keep you up to date and posted on what's going on with this, certainly occasionally through the podcast. But for more regular updates, follow us in the Facebook group. And it's the usual facebook.com forward slash commercial property investor. That'll take you to the page. Click on the group link and you can come into a more private space where we will discuss more on the numbers and things. Or you can follow us on Instagram. It's jerryalexander.commercial. That's Jerry with a J, by the way, not with a G. So jerryalexander.commercial on Instagram. So I hope this has helped give you more information, knowledge, and some experience of what to expect to give you more confidence in what you're trying to do. Keep looking out for more and more deals. Don't just focus on one. It's really important that you do that. It's worth pointing out that all the time this project was trundling along over those, I can't remember how many months it was, 14 months, whatever it took to buy it, we had another very live one and some other smaller projects we were looking at. And every now and then I could drop into the conversation that we had another project we were looking at. And we could only take on one project at a time, which was perfectly true. So which project was it going to be? Well, that would be based on the best deal we could get. As it happens, we ended up getting both deals and added over 40,000 square foot and a self-storage site to our portfolio this year, which has been brilliant. But by running more than one project at a time, to risk repeating myself over and over, you give yourself a much better negotiating position. If you get a moment, please share the podcast on social media or directly with any colleagues who you know are searching to scale up their property investments and are seeking to add the right cash-flowing assets to their portfolios. Commercial could just be the step up to a bigger deal they're looking for. Appreciate any shares or any reviews you can give us on your favourite platform. Thanks very much for listening. Catch up with you next time.